This week we're looking at a Canadian and Saudi Arabian diplomatic row, Cambodian elections, Zimbabwean elections, and a deeper dive into the end of the Syrian civil war. Welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 10th of August. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. First up is the breakdown in diplomatic relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has recalled its ambassador from Canada and made the Canadian ambassador persona non grata within Saudi Arabia. In addition, the kingdom has stated that it will put on hold all new business and investment transactions in Canada, as well as suspending flights to and from Canada on the Canadian state airline. Finally, they're also halting purchases of grain from Canada and telling its students in Canada to move to a different location to pursue their studies. Now, you might be surprised by this sudden shift in diplomatic relations. Uh, You would think it would have to be something really significant. However, the actual reason behind this has been triggered by statements by the Canadian foreign minister. The Canadian foreign minister had been quoted as saying that they were very alarmed to learn that Samar Badawai had been imprisoned in Saudi Arabia. Samar Badawai is Raif Badawai's sister, a political activist currently imprisoned in Saudi Arabia. Raif Badawai's wife and children are currently living in political asylum within Canada. And the statement by the Canadian foreign minister was followed up by a statement that Canada is gravely concerned about additional arrests of civil society and women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia and that they were urging Saudi Arabian authorities to immediately release them and other peaceful human rights activists. Now, these statements don't seem particularly strong or unusual. It's been a long-running aspect of Australian and Canadian public statements to try and make uh, statements on behalf of political rights activists around the world, although sometimes selectively as required by the country's foreign relations. However, the response seems disproportionately large in this case. And at the same time, as Saudi Arabia is engaging in reforms anyway, it seems odd that they would take such a hardline approach. However, this is a reflection of how the Saudis see the situation and that they want to set the rate of reform within the country. And a widespread opening of a a liberal democratic type of system is just not on the cards. And the leaders of the country will not accept that, as we discussed in earlier podcasts, that the, the reform is needed for the economic side of things, to transition away from oil and create a more open to society that can access more economic opportunities rather than being reliant on oil. But that doesn't mean the people in power want to completely open the floodgates to standard Western democracy, uh, as this will potentially see them thrown out of power uh, and civil unrest in the country that they just believe is completely unacceptable, as they still want to maintain their current level of authority. This Saudi Arabian overreaction is basically putting other nations on notice that they will not tolerate others interfering with their domestic policies. In response to this, the Saudis have said that they could well have in the past supported Quebecois freedom movements within Canada, but they have not. And so they see this as a double standard, whereas in one country uh, is interfering with someone's internal affairs while the other is not. Some analysts have argued that this stronger approach is perhaps a response to the belief in Saudi Arabia that the U.S. cares less and less about policing human rights in the international sphere and that it's now easier for Saudi Arabia to act harshly against those who call for uh, human rights within the country and without receiving any rebuke from the United States. However, there were limits to Saudi Arabia's condemnation. As Khalid Al-Fali said on Thursday that his country does not believe politics should interfere with oil sales, and as such, the Canadian oil sales from Saudi Arabia to Canada will not be interrupted by this diplomatic breakdown. 
We'll bring you an update on the Canadian and Saudi Arabian rift in the future. Now onto Cambodian elections. Cambodia's Prime Minister Hun Sen will continue to lead the country after 33 years in power at the head of the Cambodian People's Party, the CPP. In actions condemned in the recent past, over the last two years, Hun Sen has disbanded the main opposition, the Cambodian National Rescue Party, jailed its members, silenced critics, and forced the closure of most independent media in the country. And over the last two years, there's been repeated calls of concern around the world as this has progressed further and further along and become less and less free over time. For instance, the leader of the opposition party, Kem Sokka, is in prison currently over treason allegations. He's been accused of colluding with the US to interfere with Cambodian elections. In addition, Hun Sen has expelled the US-funded National Democratic Institute amid allegations it was also colluding with the CNRP party. A day after the election, the Prime Minister stated that his party had won all 125 parliamentary seats on offer. The European Union, the US and Australia, among others, have condemned these elections, uh, citing serious concerns how they were, the election was conducted, and in particular Australia disappointed that the Cambodian people will be unable to choose their representatives. However, the Canadian government stated that it was a long-time friend of Cambodia and would continue to use every opportunity to promote freedom of expression and political participation. This is probably isn't too much of a concern to the current Prime Minister, as he has the financial backing of China. By the end of 2017, China was by far the biggest investor in Cambodia, having placed uh, $12.6 billion in foreign direct investment, according to Chinese state media. It also became the biggest trading partner, reaching $5.8 billion in 2017, up 22% from the year earlier. In addition, the Chinese government's top diplomat told his Cambodian counterpart that foreigners should not interfere with Cambodia's internal affairs. Now, this is interesting because it's a reflection almost of the old Cold War problem where liberal democracies and communist governments were deathly afraid of being influenced by the other and having subversive elements within. As it's absolutely true that America does try to export its brand of liberal democracy abroad through various institutes and programs in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, there's lots of American institutes to promote freedom um, and this idea of changing the culture within a country to try and make it more liberal democratic over time. Just as we have current concerns in Australia over influence from China in the country to shift the dialogue and the political persuasions of the country that's going to become more pro-Chinese, this is a usual thing that happens between countries. Of course, people generally approve of their own political positions and quite happy to export it abroad. And obviously, as a counter to this, they want to keep out views that are potentially uh, dissident and against what they believe. With America being seen as being less concerned with human rights and the rise of China providing a model for a potentially authoritarian model, the issue of interference in other people's elections, which you've seen very prominent in the US and with Russia, uh, is likely to become more and more important over time. Now to Zimbabwean elections. These are first elections since the coup that ousted Mugabe in Zimbabwe. The coup leader Mangangwa obtained 50.8% of the vote compared to the opposition with 44.3%. The election has been marred by claims by the opposition that there was a manipulation of figures and that tallies recorded on V11 forms issued at each polling station and placed out the front for everyone to see were not matching those on the inside or in some cases weren't even present. Furthermore, in the lead up to the election, the government pulled forward the presidential input scheme, which is an agricultural assistance program that usually starts in October to begin on June 13, six weeks before the election. The scheme uh, aims to provide assistance to 1.8 million smallholder farmers uh, countrywide to help boost crop and livestock production. 
This was seen as buying votes effectively. While African Union observers have approved the election, many overseas have doubted the sincerity of the results. In addition, a Zimbabwean opposition politician, Tendai Biti, has appeared in court in handcuffs after he was deported from Zambia. Mr. Biti has been accused of fueling illegal protests after the election and by saying that the election results were fraudulent. Mr. Biti had perhaps foolishly applied for asylum in Zambia. However, previously Mr. Biti had gone to Zambia to show solidarity with opposition leaders when they were arrested for treason, under treason charges. Mr. Biti was highly critical of Zambia's president, Edgar Lungu, accusing him of behaving like the then president Mugabe. Not surprisingly, Zambia rejected him and deported him back to Zimbabwe, where he has been arrested. While there was some hope that these elections, after the end of Mugabe's 37-year rule of the country, might turn a new leaf and change a direction, it seems more and more likely that it's going to be a continuation by other means, and that the new government will probably be continuing a similar course to the old. That's it for this week's roundup. Now onto this week's deeper dive. Now onto the Syrian civil war, and what has been seen as an almost intractable conflict for many years now, there appears to be some kind of end in sight. At the very least, between Syria's Assad government and the rebel forces, the Syrian Assad government has come out on top. Um, he is basically one when it comes to the rebels. With the lack of moderate rebels to support, the U.S. has only been able to support the Kurdish forces in the northeast. Uh, the rebels in the south have been slowly rolled back by Russian and uh, Syrian security forces. Syria has taken back most of the rebel strongholds, including like original positions from the start of the uprisings in the country. So basically, the rebel uprising is basically come to an end. However, as we've discussed in earlier podcasts, Turkey still has forces in the northwest, and the US-backed Kurdish forces still control areas in the northeast. Um, an interesting little take on this was Assad did allow Kurdish forces to reinforce the Afrin district that was taken several months ago to fight Turkish forces there. And so it seems like Assad was quite willing to work with the, the Kurds, who are being backed by the US, who is quite strongly against him, uh, in an effort to take care of Turkey, which is making its own power plays in the Northwest and attempts to crush the Kurds. And so it seems Assad is quite willing to let the Kurds bleed the Turks a little bit and make them fight a little bit harder while he's working on his own uh, efforts down in the South. Now, the reason why Syria's government has gone from an extremely weak position uh, much earlier in this war to now being far more dominant is basically the backing of international players. That is primarily Russia, who has been a security partner of Syria and sold it many weapons in the past, and Iran, which is trying to establish itself more strongly in the region. It's been working to bring the Iraqi government onto its side. It's been trying to expand its influence throughout the region. And Syria is another avenue for it to support a friendly government that will be working alongside it against others in the region, particularly against the Gulf states. However, Iran and Russia probably have slightly different ideas in what they would like to see in Syria's future. Iran particularly wants to see Syria as a staging point to basically threaten Israel and to box Israel in a bit. It would love to put missile systems, and it's done so in the past, in southern Syria to basically threaten um, Israel's uh, ability to move its air force around the, the region because Israel has quite openly stated that it's quite willing to use its air force to unilaterally move in and strike targets in other locations, particularly in Iran, in response to things like nuclear programs and things like that. So it's absolutely in Iran's interest to try and prevent or mitigate the, the effectiveness of the Israeli air force. However, 
Russia and particularly Syria, uh, the Assad government, would probably just like things to cool down for a bit and have a chance to rebuild. They want to avoid any additional entanglements. They want to let the country have a chance to rebuild. Most of the country is in ruins from the fighting or has been uh, seen mass movements of people out of their homes. Um, so the country is really at a low point economically and, and security-wise in that it is very, very vulnerable at the moment. Uh, and it really requires some time, probably a good five, ten years minimum, to basically get back up on its feet, let alone become strong again. This could be accelerated by Russia investing in it. But again, Russia is nowhere near as powerful as the U.S., so it doesn't have the economy of the U.S., so it's much harder for Russia to try and prop up a country economically. Uh, it just doesn't have the economic wherewithal, especially as it's also suffering, like Iran, from sanctions from uh, the EU and other Western countries. The other reason why Assad has done so well in the South against the rebels is he hasn't really been opposed by the U.S. The U.S. early on, uh, under the Obama administration, tried to find moderate rebel groups to try and arm as the U.S. would like to see regime change in Syria. It would like to turn it into a pro, or at the very least, uh, not pro-Russian, but preferably pro-U.S. state, because why not have one more ally? But the lack of moderate forces meant they really basically gave up after a while trying to arm moderate forces because they all eventually were becoming jihadi groups. And if they weren't going that way, they were quickly taken out by others because they were just far more ruthless than the moderate groups, as one might expect from an extremist group. This means as ISIS came onto the field in Syria, both the Russians and the US were quite happy to bomb them, but generally they weren't worrying about them unless they were fighting their own forces. So you wouldn't see US forces really going out of their way to help Syria's uh, Assad forces, and you weren't seeing the Russians working particularly hard to help the Kurds. They're both helping their respective groups, but they weren't willing to go out beyond that. And so once it got to the point where the Kurds had basically started running out of rebel forces to fight, the US had no much reason to be engaging much in terms of airstrikes. Um, and they were starting this process of trying to get some kind of uh, political resolution, which there was some agreement from Russia and say Turkey and other states to, who were involved in this process. But effectively, while the negotiations been going on, the Russians and Syrians have just continued south and taken the rest of the country from the rebels. Another major reason why the U.S. hasn't bothered to escalate in Syria beyond uh, trying to back up the red line that Obama declared in terms of uh, no chemical weapons is that it's just not strategically important to the U.S. Syria is not that important. It's not worth dying and fighting over. Unlike Europe uh, or East Asia, where there are major powers that could potentially rise and be a threat, or the Persian Gulf, where there is oil, which is important to the world economy, Syria is just not that important. And it's not worth expending precious armaments and time and power when there are other issues like China, uh, potentially, that need to focus one's efforts against. In addition, the US ra has ratcheted back its efforts as Turkey has come onto the scene and as a NATO ally, Turkey was very upset with the US backing the Kurds because the Kurds also exist within Turkey as a, a minority group, which this position in Syria would give them a ground to declare their own state and start uh, efforts in Turkey to also secede, meant the US has basically rolled back most of its attacks and is taking a much more sedate approach in Syria than it once had. This effectively means the Syrian civil war is basically over, at least between the rebels and the government, which was the original 
uh, effect of this war breaking out, which was internal uprisings against the government, which then spread, became flooded with jihadists, had the Kurds coming onto the scene to fight jihadists to help secure territory for themselves, but also to defend themselves. Um, And then eventually the U.S. coming in, Russia coming in, Iran coming in, all these players coming in, trying to shift the balance of power, and eventually it basically ending up with Syria, uh, Assad's government on top, but with the Kurds still holding a, a good portion of the country in the northeast, and the Turks holding a bit of bit of the country in the northwest. So it's still yet to be seen how Syria's Assad is going to resolve the issue of all the Kurds and the Turks that are in the north of the country, but it's unlikely there's going to be a major war with those. There'll be some, probably some kind of political. Uh, deal made with Turkey. The Kurds, yet to be seen. There could be a political acceptance, much like occurred in Iraq, where the Kurds pulled back because they were basically going to be overwhelmed by the Iraqi army, um, as they don't have the backing of a a powerful state like the US that's going to go to war with another major state without a good reason. So this means the Kurds will probably have to roll back some of their gains eventually. If Assad takes too long to reconstitute himself, they might be able to try and develop the area they have into some kind of status quo. Um, But it's highly likely that Assad is going to want back all the territory he had originally, and it may be a matter of just biding time and waiting. That's it for this week's Deeper Dive. Now for an article update. Uh, Related to yesterday's discussion on Beijing's Made in China 2025 policy and its soft power impacts, Uh, Envoy analyst Jacqueline Mace has just published an article on how K-pop songs such as Gangnam Style have helped propel a positive image of Korea abroad. So check it out at envoyfpa.org. That's it for this week's podcast. As always, feel free to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages. And if you have any questions, comments, or queries, please send them to envoyuwa at gmail.com. We're now back onto our regularly scheduled once-a-week broadcast, so we'll be back next week with more.